0: Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer.
1: Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call
0: 1-800-858-858. Thorpe
1: is coming in. Gold
0: and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. Three minutes to go.
1: Paul in test cricket in England for Shane Warden. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Yeah! Australia
0: have done it. Yeah! Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Peter Donigan.
1: And it's great to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life, the Tobin Brothers funeral, celebrating lives on this International Women's Day and the day of the T20 World Cup final. My guest today, appropriately, is the best female cricketer Australia has ever produced, Belinda Clark. Belinda, welcome. Thanks for having me. An appropriate day for you to be here.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's um, always a great celebration, International Women's Day, and with such a great event on today, we're really looking forward to it.
1: And of course, the fact that Australia is in the final is an added bonus.
2: Absolutely, and we've been um, really had our fingers crossed the whole time that that would be the case, and it's just going to be terrific to see them apply their trade out on the MCG um, later today.
1: It's going to be a magnificent occasion, a great celebration of women's sport in general.
2: Yeah, it's going to be um, it's going to be a great opportunity for um, Melburnians and people are uh, going to fly interstate as well. But um, great number of tickets sold, and um, obviously Melbourne's a, a sporting capital of Australia. Like likes to um, turn up and watch. Um, games of of cricket in particular at the MCG, so we've really got our fingers crossed for the um, to break the record.
1: did you think you 'd ever see this day come in the days when you were just in the formative years and you were playing in front of family and friends?
2: I did I, look I thought um, I remember speaking with um, on a panel with Kate Palmer about twenty years ago and she was the CEO of netball Australia at that point and um, I was explaining to the to the group we were talking to that one day um, cricket will really be challenging. Um, netball is a sport of choice for, for young girls and she sort of looked at me sideways and thought yeah, are you serious and I said yeah I am I think um, this is a great game for girls to play and, uh, and I think we're seeing the uh, the fruits of that labour over a long period of time.
1: In lots of ways it's come reasonably quickly the, the steps were gradual for a while but then there's been a few big steps in recent years.
2: Absolutely. And I think um, the advent of T20 cricket has really allowed the women's game to take centre stage at at certain periods of time. And the WBBL has been around five years now. We've had two sellout finals. We've had a lot more cricket on um, commercial television because of the the T20 format. And I think bit by bit, uh, Australians have just got used to it and and around the world that uh, this is now a game that people are willing to come and watch.
1: And of course, the great thing about it is that young girls now have role models they can aspire to be like.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So when I was growing up, it was, um, you know, it was Steve War or Alan Border or Greg Chappell um, and, and a, a batch of tennis, a female tennis stars because the female tennis stars were really the only ones we were seeing on, on television um, and any male-dominated uh, sports, it was just the males that you would see. So they, they were your heroes and, and I'm sure a lot of young girls still have um, male players as heroes, but they've got a choice now. They can, they can support Meg Lanning uh, and they can follow um, Alex Carey at the same time and, and that's just wonderful.
1: Tennis was a big sport for you early on, wasn't it? That was uh, one of the things you aspired to.
2: I did. I um, I would have loved to have win, uh, um, played at Wimbledon. Um, I've been there and watched uh, one of my mates play in, uh, in Rachel McQuillan, who I played junior tennis with, and uh, I've seen her play at Wimbledon, and it was just wonderful to be in the players' rooms and, and watching her uh, at the elite uh, end of, of the game. But, um, yeah, as a, as a family, tennis was our major game and until I was probably about 13 or 14 and, and the cricket bug took over.
1: How good at tennis were you?
2: I was reasonable i could uh, I, uh, I could I could certainly uh, hold my own I, I wasn't a um, a champion I had a sister that was a much better player than what I was, but um, it didn't didn't stop the dreaming from, from happening and um, I just love watching it now still.
1: Where do you think the women's game is heading at the moment? Obviously it's in the right direction
2: yeah, absolutely I think um the thing that's changed the most has been um, exposure on television that that has been um, the game changer for us as a as a sport. Um, at the same time, we've had a lot of other female sports in Australia, in particular, pick up and, and get a great following. So I think as a collective, women's sport uh, is moving forward, which is fantastic at the elite end. And I think that has a direct relationship with exposure, whether that's television or radio, um, you know, getting space in, um, in uh, newspaper columns, etc. But then that's just providing an opportunity for young girls and young boys to get um, comfortable with the idea that, um, you know, females can play elite sport and they can play it very well. And um, I've just seen it through the eyes of my two nephews who uh, turn up and I say, we're going to go and watch Australia play. And they just look at me and they say, the men or the women? Mm. Um, And they're as fascinated with the women's team as they are with the men. So watching that change from a generation's perspective has been really pleasing Um, and young girls are picking up bats and balls in greater numbers than they ever have before.
1: Do you think the likelihood is that we'll see more of the game on television?
2: Uh, Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, the whole... um, media landscape is changing um, pretty drastically, but I think visual pictures of people doing things is really important. So whether that's on television, whether that's streaming, whether that's um, clips on your, on your phone, et cetera, I think um, being able to see it for yourself is, um, is a critical thing about getting momentum moving in the in movement like this.
1: Again, drawing parallels with the Australian Open, they had equal prize money, is there going to be a day where there's equal pay? Do you think?
2: Oh, I think there will be, um, and I think the um, the the work that cricket's doing at the moment is to really try and work its way to that point. Um, considering the different formats of the game that both the males and females play, um, different expectations, different time away from home. But I think we're we're absolutely walking in that direction, and um, it'll, it'll it's. It's been a lot quicker over the last two or three years than what it has been the last five before that, but it's absolutely the um, the, the, the approach is to get to that point.
1: Do crowds have to increase, though, before that can be a reality?
2: Uh, crowds are increasing. So I think this is um, the chicken and egg um, um argument that we sort of go around in circles with a little bit, that um, yes, you need some popularity, but you can't get the popularity unless you're on the on the screens. Um, you can't pay attention to be a full-time athlete unless you're paid accordingly. So it starts to to swirl in a, into a circular argument. Um, but I think what we're seeing now is that people do want to come and watch. Um, there is a product there. Um, the game's commercially... Um, attractive for sponsors. Um, the, the girls are now able to train full time and, and all those things add up and make a difference and, and the, the wheel is absolutely spinning in a positive direction.
1: You've got your foot in both camps because you're an administrator as well as being a former player so you understand where it is at both sides of the fence.
2: Absolutely and um, sometimes uh, you know you need to take a step back and just remember what it was like to be in those players shoes um, trying to do what you know do their very best, um, make a living out of the game um, but but also set themselves up beyond that so um, I'm a big believer in uh, it doesn't really matter how much money you make in a sport, whether you're making millions or you're making hundreds of thousands or you're making tens of thousands. It's really important that you have a purpose beyond um, your playing career and and that's really critical I'm really passionate about making sure that all our cricketers have something in their life beyond at that point in time where the, the boots get hung up and the bat goes into the cupboard forever. Um, it's really important that they've got some purpose beyond um, beyond that those playing days.
1: We've talked a lot about the positives. What are the challenges facing the women's game at the moment?
2: Oh, look, I think at a, um, the, the biggest challenges are at grassroots level, um, making sure that that, um, you know, clubs are supported and, and able to grow and provide opportunities for young girls to play. So that means they need facilities um, that are able to be, um, you know, that are, are good for both males and females. That means change rooms. It means um, changing their thinking a little bit about who gets scheduled when to train and who, who gets on the main oval when. So that those um, societal changes uh, at community level are, are probably our biggest challenge. Um, we have a number of clubs in, in fact they're growing on an annual basis that are providing those opportunities for for both girls and women and I think um, that that opening up of um, you know the people that have the keys to the sheds, if you like, the the people that have the the relationships with councils et cetera, to get access to those facilities that's that's probably the the key challenge. Um, and then beyond that, um, just bringing the the women's game from a professional setting up up to speed, making sure that they've got physios, they've got strength and conditioners, they've got psychologists, and that you don't service the men first and then worry about the women second. You actually should be servicing both teams, both at a state level, BBL level, and Australian level to the same to the same level.
1: You talked about a very important point there, though, the, the change facilities um, because that's always been the bugbear, hasn't it? That it's always been very male oriented. And you had to adapt to that, but the day is now coming where there has to be separate facilities, and it seems we're going down that path.
2: Yeah, they just have to be um open and welcoming. So um, a lot of our sporting facilities were built you know back in the 50s, 60s um, and and they've been built primarily at that point, the people playing sport on fields, um, whether it's soccer, rugby league, AFL or cricket, primarily they were men. so that means the the buildings have been designed with that in mind and um there now needs to be some work done to make sure that those places are welcoming um for for females as well
1: what were the facilities like when you just started out
2: well i played in a um an under under 16 boys team in uh, in my hometown which was newcastle i was 14 at the time and i got changed in the car i got uh, dropped off changed in the car and then um Mum would come back and pick me up later and I'd, there was no real need to be going in and out other than um, obviously use, accessing the bathroom. So it was just a little bit awkward but, uh, you know, you, as a kid you don't see the challenges as, um, as clearly as what you do as an adult and um, as a kid I just wanted to play and this was fantastic that I could play. Um, so it, it didn't bother me at the time but it, it bothers me now that um, we're still in situations where, where that's the case.
1: Was there a lot of finger pointing that went on in those days? Look at the girl playing with the boys.
2: Uh, not really. I was. Um, I think um, ignorance is bliss when you're that age, and sometimes um, adults overlay what they see as barriers on onto kids. So I, I didn't. I knew it wasn't. Um, I didn't have. I was the only girl in my team. In fact, in the competition, um, but I was just so grateful that I could get out there and have a game. So um, most of the people I played with and and against were very respectful and and quite encouraging. Um, if anything,
1: where did you grow up?
2: Where, where, where did you grow up? You know, I grew up um, mainly in Newcastle. So before that, my um, a couple of country towns in New South Wales. So uh, dad was a school principal. So we, we tripped around a little bit and landed in Newcastle when I was about uh, six. So um, most of my childhood was, uh, was in Newcastle and a uh, great sporting town um, with lots of opportunities for, for kids to, to play all sorts of different things.
1: Were your parents sporty?
2: Uh, they were. Um, my mum was a better athlete or a better sports person than my dad, which he hates me saying. Um, but uh, she was a, a country, uh, you know, New South Wales country level tennis player. Um, he was a hack golfer. He played a <laughs> few other things at uh, at college. Um, but she was a, um, a very good um, tennis player. And that's that's probably the reason why the, the family mainly played tennis.
1: So how serious were you? <clears throat> Sorry, I'll do that again. So, how serious were you with your tennis ambitions early on? Did you feel as though that that was going to be your sport of choice down the track?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That was. Um, I mean, that's where, from about the age of four or five, that's where my attention was. We trip around the countryside and play in tennis tournaments all around uh, all around country New South Wales, visiting family and um, and and we played in a set I, by the school holidays. I knew what tournament we were we were going to play in, so that that essentially was life uh, for me up until the age of about thirteen when I started playing hockey and cricket and indoor cricket and volleyball and whatever else was on offer at high school. So, but yeah, absolutely, that was the ambition and um, somewhat sits in the back of my my mind as an unfulfilled um, dream, really. But uh, I wasn't wasn't as good at tennis as I was at cricket and um, Mm. that became obvious the longer I played.
1: Did you get to see any handy tennis players along the way as you were developing? Uh, Were there any names that we might recognise now?
2: Yeah, probably the main one would be Rachel McQuillan. Yeah. Um, and uh, she was uh, a year younger than me and probably at the age of about 13, she would have been 12. She was starting to, to beat the 13-year-old. So um, she was a great, a great player, a great ambassador for this country and ended up um, forging out quite a, a strong career. Uh, Renee Stubbs, I played in, uh, tournaments against her. So it was that, that era where we had quite a few um, players push through into the professional um, scene.
1: She's a great character, Stubbsy. I've done a bit of commentary with her over the years and uh, she's uh, forthright um, and she's also gone into the coaching ranks and done a pretty good job in recent years too.
2: Yeah, and I think it's fantastic that, that that's another career opportunity that's opening up for females, um, whether it's in the coaching ranks or in the broadcast box. Um, I've got teammates who are now forging great careers uh, outside the the playing arena but still involved in the sport and, and they're changing attitudes and and, um, the culture of the sport, you know, daily by just being there, sitting in the commentary box, um, you know, with with, um, the males.
1: We'll explore plenty more when we come back on the other side of the break. My special guest today is Belinda Clark on this International Women's Day. And it's all on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. More with Belinda coming up after the break.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, proud supporters of International Women's Day. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, proud supporters of International Women's Day.
1: What a pleasure it is to have Belinda Clark as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au, Tobin Brothers Celebrating Lives. Belinda, you talked about the transition from tennis to cricket. How did that eventually come about? Why did it come about and how did it come about?
2: Well, I was always fascinated with the game um, from very young age. It was the era of World Series cricket, so um, we had coloured clothing. Um, I, I remember the, tr- the first trip to the SCG with the family to watch a one day international, sitting on the hill. Um, those days, the hill was still there, and uh, and you could bring your beer cans in, and there was beer cans flying across in front of the old scoreboard. Yeah. I just remember it um, very fondly. I had a brother that was five years older than me, and he was a cricketer, so. Being um, a younger sister, I followed him around. I could smell the linseed oil on his bat. I watched what he did, so I was um, I was always playing in the in the playground with the boys at primary school, um, out the back of the tennis courts when we were waiting for matches to be called, and then finally um, went to high school and there was a girls' cricket team and that was the moment in which I uh, finally got to step foot on a proper field and, and put on the on the kit and play, and um, I got picked in a rep team, Hunter Region team for school, state team. And that all happened within a couple of weeks and then I had to um, go up to the nets to train. So um, that team that I went to train with, just as a a spare wheel, um, ended up being short and I ended up playing the season with the boys. So that was the the start of it all um, some time ago.
1: Did you start on turf wickets? Because I remember when I was a kid playing on those concrete wickets, and you'd have the mesh and all of that sort of stuff. Was it turf straight away for you?
2: No, it was. Uh, it was the old school. We had concrete. We had um, synthetic grass. We had painted concrete. You name it. Um, we played on a lot of different surfaces. But as a kid, you don't really, you don't really care what you, what you're playing on. And in fact, it's probably better not to be playing on turf um, from a, a technical perspective when you're that age, because um, it's a lot harder to play on turf than it is um, on those concrete wickets.
1: So we've all done what you did. We've all played cricket on concrete wickets and we've played out the back and we've played in the nets. What made you believe that you had something that would take you to a pretty good level in cricket? And and how quickly did that come for you?
2: Uh, Look, it happened pretty quickly from um, the point in time where I played my first match to be playing sort of school representative cricket and then into, you know, into a pathway. Um, I got selected in a in the under 18 New South Wales team. I think I was uh, 15 at the time. Uh, The tournament was in Canberra and I was already playing a tennis tournament in Canberra at the same time, just by chance. So I said, yep, no problem. I'll play in your state team, but I can't play the first two days because I'm playing in a tennis tournament over (laughs) here. They were very open-minded about that. Um, The coach of the team uh, was an Australian player at the time, um, a woman called Karen Price, and she was very open and flexible and allowed me to come into the team. Two or three days into the tournament, and um, at that point, I thought, "Yeah, this is—I'm pretty good at this." And then, sort of, just spiraled um, upwards from there. And by the time I was 20, I was playing for Australia. And by the time I was 23, I was captain.
1: Was it always batting?
2: Uh, I'd like to think I was an all-rounder, um, but the the longer I played, the the worse the uh, the bowling got. But um, yeah, I mean, when when you um, start to play with people that are really good, you start to work out that. Um, Your bowling skills are nowhere near what the people that are actually bowlers are like. So that that took a bit of a back seat. I bowled a bit of spin later on, um, always bowling in the nets. I've still got a sore back from bowling in the nets. But um, uh, no, it was uh, pretty much the batting that that took centre stage. What was
1: the recognition like when you first got into the Australian team from the public at that stage? Were you basically an unknown quantity amongst the general public?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, It was... um, uh, even um, you know, it was your family knew obviously, and the people that were in the cricket circles. Uh, I was very, um, very fortunate to have you know great support from um, you know the cricket community, both in Newcastle and then I was studying in Sydney at the time. So I felt very supported. But yeah, I mean, to the to the general general public, you know, Joe Blow on the on the street, they would wouldn't have had a clue that probably that there was a women's team. I didn't know there was a women's team until I um, went to high school either. Um, so. That, that was pretty much the norm at that point. We were almost invisible to the Australian people.
1: And what sort of crowds would you play in front of in the early days?
2: Well, I think my test debut was uh, at North Sydney Oval against India. Um, I think there probably would have been two or 300 there at, at best. Um, so quite quite small. Um, and that, that probably was the norm in Australia for quite some time. And the big crowds we played on in front of were either in India or at times in England, depending on um, you know the support the county system would provide. So that was very, very normal for Australia to have quite small crowds relative to India and England.
1: I know that you're wearing the national colours, but is it hard to get motivated when you're only playing in front of that many people? When you see the crowds that the men are getting, the comparisons are inevitable. Is it tough to motivate yourself or is it the fact that you're wearing the national colours that does that?
2: No, look, I think um, it, it was never difficult. And I think, um, I mean, even playing a game of club cricket, you know, the, that's, you know, two, two, two people and a dog watching that. And I found often, um, you know, the expectations on myself and on the team that I was playing for that um, they wouldn't change a lot. So, yeah, there was a bit more fanfare around a state match and an Australian match. But at the end of the day, um, my expectations on myself were that. I played, you know, to the best of my ability every every single time I played. So they that didn't really change a lot. Um it did make a difference in front of a big crowd, not from an expectations perspective, but just from an, an a nervousness of like, Oh my god. So in, in a World Cup final in nineteen ninety seven we had, mm. you know, seventy or eighty thousand I men. they didn't count them through the gate, but there was a lot of people there and um that just added a layer of nervousness that it took a while to, to be able to block that out.
1: That was at Eden Gardens.
2: Yeah it's a day I'll, I'll never forget but um, yeah fascinating opportunity and an experience to to be in a country like India um, with that many people um, playing a game against New Zealand uh, which goes to show you can get a lot of people there even if um you know if if the home country's not playing in the final.
1: Well tell us about that experience and tell us about your nerves playing in front of that many people.
2: Well we were we got word the day before the match so we had a, our last training session Um, on the field uh, in the afternoon and we got word that the BCCI or the Women's Cricket Association, as it was then, had done a lot of work to get people to come to the ground. So there was a bit of a chatter as we were doing the lap of the oval as our obligatory warm-up lap um, about what was going to happen tomorrow and we might get people. And, and Karen Rolton in particular, who was um, ended up being um, one of the stars of the team, she was she was uh, quite young at this point. And uh, she was so excited that she was going to play in front of a big crowd. And I think everyone else was just ignoring it. Yeah, we've heard chatter before. We, we're we not going to believe it until they turn up. But she was really excited about um, playing in front of a big crowd. And then the following day, uh, we turned up to the ground and, and just bit by bit, the ground started to fill. And... By the time we were sort of halfway through our batting innings, um, this thing was pumping. So very high-pitched noise in the, in the crowd. It was young girls and it was women primarily, and you could really notice the high pitch of the, of the, um, of the crowd. And, and they were just going bananas for basically that point right through to the end. Um, and it was just an amazing um, – it was a nerve-wracking day because we, uh, we batted second um, and it was a bit of a nerve-wracking chase. But uh, we got there, I can remember, standing – uh, in the change room with the coach. Neither of us could actually watch the game live. We were watching it on the television in the change room, um, You know, watching the last couple of runs get ticked off and just a, a feeling of great relief uh, once we won that tournament.
1: Just imagine what it's like for Virat Kohli when he's at home.
2: Yeah, well, Sachin Tendorka, I mean, honestly, these guys are um, absolutely worshipped, so their lives change the moment they play for India.
1: Now, I should mention that your name is in that sort of company because of one of the feats that you were able to do in your great career, and that is that you are the first player, male or female, to score a double ton in a one-day international.
2: Yeah, little-known fact... um, at sometimes but um often something that the trivia Wizards bring out at uh, uh at certain times yes. and uh, those people that are uh, in tune with the game sort of know the answer to that one but um yeah same same world cup in in 97 um against Denmark at the Mumbai uh cricket club and uh just a, a wonderful day uh, that essentially was early on in the tournament and i was simply trying to bat for the for the 50 overs that was my objective of the day and um got going sort of midway through and and uh, ended up with uh over two hundred, which is great.
1: What's it like being in that space? Did you give many chances throughout the innings?
2: No, I didn't give any chances, but I wasn't hitting the ball very well for you know the first ten or fifteen overs. Um, different conditions, the ball wasn't quite coming onto the bat well. Um, so there's a lot of running. Um, I've looked at the scorecard since, and there was a lot of ones, uh, ones and twos run early in and before I sort of started to get the hang of it, and the fours and sixes came came much later.
1: Am I right in saying there was one six?
2: Probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. The grounds, the grounds would have been bigger than what they are what they are now, and um, I was uh, probably more likely to be hitting fours and sixes.
1: Did you feel as though when you're in, in the middle of that innings that you're in that space that all sports people desire to be uh, that that mythical zone that they talk about?
2: Uh, yeah, the back end of it, I, I definitely was. Um, and there's uh, probably three, four, five innings where um, I, that I can remember entering that point where you have no concern about the past or the future and that's a really hard place to keep yourself in for any length of time. So you fl- you fl- fail um, you know flail in and out of it through an innings, but when you're playing really well, you can keep yourself in that in that phase for um, significant amounts of time and that's really when you start to get into the flow of not worrying about what the scoreboard says, not worrying about what the opposition's doing, you don't care where the fielders are. And it just all starts to happen for you. Nothing the other person can do, the opposition can do, can stop you.
1: You were the first to do it, but since then that score has been eclipsed. Were you dirty when it got eclipsed?
2: Well, um uh Amelia Kerr, uh she got it uh playing in um in Ireland, I think. And um I I rang um I rang the team manager when she did it, who is um who is a a person that I played against in New Zealand, Catherine Campbell. And uh I rang her and said, "Oh, can you can you give me Amelia's number?" So I, I since then went on to text Amelia to say, "Well done." But I, look, I think those types of things are great because it brings it brings the past and the present together um, with a comparative point in this in this instance um, a score, and I think that's great for the the current players to, to realise what had happened in the past, and for the past players to realise uh, that the game continues to move forward and and there's stuff to celebrate there too.
1: It's obviously a special place in the game when you can do something like that.
2: Yeah, it's nice. And I've got um, the team I played in, I was really lucky to play at a time when we had some absolutely amazing players. And there's a number of moments through that period, 10-year period, where people did things for the first time. And now as we're, historically we, historically, we roll over those dates, they, they'll they get put up on, on social media that, you know, this is the day that Lisa Kiteley became the first woman to score 100 at Lord's. Well, and, you know, it's great. It brings back the memories. Or this was the first day that, you know, Catherine Fitzpatrick did X. And um, it's just wonderful to be able to, to you know, roll over those moments. But to have one yourself is, is also nice because then you get to reflect on what you used to do a long time ago.
1: Speaking of some of those names, Belinda, who were the people who had a big influence on you when you were a young woman coming into the team for the first couple of years?
2: Uh, Christina Matthews was the Australian wicketkeeper at the time. But she was also working in um, the administration as the coaching and development manager. and so she was organising all the youth camps and she was organising the youth tours, and um, so she was influential because she was pushing she was pushing the game forward um, from a development perspective, from a pathway perspective. And she was my club captain, and I moved to Sydney to study um physiotherapy at the age of eighteen, finished school. And she she became my training partner, so she was absolutely influential and and still is today as um, CEO of the Wacker. So she's probably the main one. Um, the captain at the time was uh, Lynn Larson. She was captain of New South Wales. Um, she was from from the Lismore area, so a country girl, um, very quietly spoken, but super tactically. and um, I was had I was the beneficiary of sitting in teams watching her apply her trade on the field. Tactically, when I played against her, you just did not know where you were going to score a run. And she was so clever at um, being able to to manage a game of cricket. So they're probably the two that stand out.
1: A lot of my guests talk about the great teams that they've played in. They talk about reunions and getting together with the uh, old teammates. Do you do that?
2: We had a great reunion um, in 2017 before the Australian team went to play in the last 50-over World Cup, which they um, disappointingly, um, finished third, and uh, Cricket Australia got together all of the women's teams that had been successful at World Cups from the beginning of World Cups, which was in 1973. The women started playing World Cups. That was a, a Mark Jennings-led team, um, all the way to today, and to be able to celebrate um, and receive. Um, a medal because a lot of the people before us weren't, you know, the organisation, you, you played in the World Cup final, you didn't get anything. So the organisation gave everyone um, a medal um, from the ICC recognising um, their victory. And that was an amazing night because that really did span the generations and it gave you a sense of um, all of what's gone before you and all what's gone in front of you. So that, that's probably the major, major reunion that I remember.
1: Is there one particular story that was told in that reunion that, you can share with us that really stands out.
2: the The first team, the first World Cup team um, in 1973, they they had it tough, and you know, I mean, everyone paid their own way right up until halfway through my career. So, you know, some of their some of their efforts to fundraise. Um, some of the funny things that that you know happens when they're trying to raise raise funds and you know talk to their employers about I've got to go I've got to go away for a little while. How long are you got to go away for oh, a couple of weeks? What are you doing? I'm playing cricket What So mm. just just that whole um, you know the way that's described through through their eyes is um, quite amusing.
1: I might talk to you about the money side of things when we come back on the other side of the break. Belinda Clark is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives, a family-owned business since 1934. TobinBrothers.com.au to find out some more. Plenty more with Belinda Clark on the other side of the break.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan Donigan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, proud supporters of International Women's Day. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, proud supporters of International
1: Women's Day. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Belinda Clark on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Now we touched on the filthy subject of money uh, before the break. What was, if I can ask you, what was the biggest contract that you were on in your time?
2: Uh, I was. Uh, I didn't earn any money from from the game, so zero. Um, but I was lucky enough to win $150 running in the Botany Gift as a uh, front <laughs> marker. Uh, really? Yeah. So, um, anyway, um, just uh, no. I played. I played purely for the love of it. There was no financial reward. Not I, a dollar. Not a dollar. But I was. Um, I suppose in that generation, where uh, the first, uh, the first part of my career, I was um, paying for the, the, the privilege. Um, in some capacity, and now the association would do everything it could to keep the cost down. But we'd get levies for the blazer and for the, um, you know, for the quick um, the kit. Uh, and then from '98 onwards, which is when the Combank became a sponsor of the Australian Women's Team, um, from that point forward, um, the invoices disappeared, and it was um, and it was essentially just um, taking time off work, often leave without pay, but you weren't getting a bill at the end of it. So we thought that was great. Um, whereas the players now, obviously, are um, are now earning money. Uh, as well, which is even better.
1: Did you get to fly, uh, fly up the front of the plane very much? Or no, were you... we were at the back. Yeah.
2: Uh, so the girls have been up the front of the plane for, oh, I'll be guessing, but it six, be five or six years now, um, similar to their male counterparts. But no, my day we were down the back. In fact, probably right down the back.
1: <laughs> it does make a difference um, for the, the athletes now uh, to be able to hit the ground running because that's what you've got to do as a professional sports person. Almost the minute you arrive in another country, you're on, your job is starting. So it does make a difference, I think.
2: Oh, look, just simply um, the importance of sleep, if, if nothing yeah. else, even if you can't get your body um, flat, um, uh, the importance of sleep and being able to get into the time zone really quickly. And you know what it's like when you have a couple of days where you don't sleep well, to mm. then be expected to be performing at your best. So that the the ability to sort of you know, sleep on a plane, lie down, and and that that's actually the the major benefit of being able to fly at the pointy end.
1: Well, we've spoken about the World Cup um, and that famous game in India, two thousand and one yeah. World Cup. You had a great personal day, I think it was ninety one, one of your great innings, but it didn't end well for the team.
2: No, we lost by uh, four runs, and it's probably the. The thing when people say, you know, what do you think of World Cups? I think of, you know, two victories and then I think, oh, and that one that got away and that was the one that got away that um, would have been really nice to, to get those four extra runs. But they outplayed us on the day. Um, they had a home crowd behind them and uh, New Zealand were just a little bit too good for us and we, we, couldn't, um, we couldn't overcome them.
1: Is it something that sits in your guts for a while?
2: Oh, absolutely, and um, I mean, this is the the downside of social media that every day that that pops around as well. They've, yeah. uh, I've got all those New Zealand people that you've connect, connected with or stay connected with, and they're um, they're very excited about the fact that they won the World Cup that day, and they they remember that fondly. And um, each time I read one of those, I, I uh, just a little tear comes to the eye.
1: Funny that rivalry in cricket between Australia and New Zealand. I wonder how that all got underway.
2: Oh, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know, but I'm uh, good mates with Mr. Chappell as well. So, uh, yes. Um, yeah, it's uh, look, I think um, it, is, it is an amazing rivalry considering um, the size of New Zealand and the size of Australia and the level of competition we have between the two nations um, in this sport is phenomenal.
1: Can I just ask you something that's just popped into my head while we're talking about the New Zealand team and, and the men's team? In recent times, they've been seen as a different team in that they are probably regarded as the greatest sports people uh, in cricket the way that they behave. And, and that's something that the Australian team was not known for for a long time. Is there room for that sort of sportsmanship in cricket, be it male or female, as opposed to the win-at-all-costs attitude?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think um, I think the, the New Zealand men's team have been leading the way, leading world cricket through mm. that. Um, I think the other teams in the men's game have um, pulled their socks up and I think we're getting now... Back to what sport is actually all about. If you um, absolutely everyone wants to win, there's no doubt about that. Um, but there is a way to win, and I think um, the women's game has been, you know, holding that light for quite some time. And I'm I'd be really disappointed if um if we ever had any issues in the women's game, um, because there's generally good friends um, on both sides, and they play together in the WBBL and the Kia Super League, and um, they have the utmost respect for each other. And um, there's more smiles than frowns, which is which is nice.
1: Back to World Cup, so one wasn't good. Four years later, it was okay though.
2: Yeah, 2005 was good, and uh, it was sort of my always going to be my last World Cup, and uh, the last 50 over World Cup that I, I played in, and then uh, one tour of England, and then that was it for me. But um, and then the T20 stuff started not you know not long after that. So um, I was uh, unfortunate that the T20 World Cups weren't weren't in when I was when I was playing because I reckon it would have been a wonderful format to have a go at.
1: When you got to the end of your career, I think you played was it fifteen or sixteen tests in your career. Yeah,
2: around around that fourteen or
1: fifteen. It was only really essentially one a year or or thereabouts. Would you like to see more Test cricket played for women?
2: Well, I played three in my first uh, in my first year, so um, they were sort of very sporadic um, throughout my career. I think the um, the trade off becomes around. Um, exposure and using the opportunities you have to play to get in front of people. And that's where the short form game has been the great beneficiary. So we spoke earlier about the benefit of being on television and the short format of mm. the game. Um, that's actually that's in conflict with the traditional view of well we then now need to play test cricket because that's more difficult to get on television society's you know probably not going to be watching that there's probably not going to be the crowds to that um so it's just been a trade-off that um, you know we've made a very conscious decision to go hard at the one day the one day stuff and I, I can't see test cricket um, getting to the point where it's a, a regular feature in the women's calendar
1: and a lot of people Belinda are surprised about the fact that the ashes series is not a series of test matches it's a A series of different forms of the game that comprises the Ashes. Do you think it'll be that way forever and a day because of the reasons you were just talking about?
2: Yeah, I think so. And that works really well. I mean, England and Australia are probably the two that are most attached to Test cricket. Um, And if you think about globalising the game, it's really important that um, sports continue to grow and and are played in many countries. And the avenue to do that is, is short form cricket. In doing that, you need to recognise the history between Australia and England and, you know, we played our first test in 34-35 at the Gabba between Australian women and and English women and we don't want to lose that history um, but I think the way forward is, is the shorter formats.
1: 34, 35, there wouldn't have been much rivalry going on at that stage between Australia and England, would there?
2: No, and, uh, and look, there's quite um, – <laughs> I mean, there's quite big um, big crowds who come through the Depression and, and those, mm. those years as well to watch the likes of Betty Wilson. So, I mean, you know, we had sort of uh, humble beginnings and then we sort of had a bit of a, um, a renaissance in, the, in that middle period um, around that time of the Depression and then it sort of drip, dropped off again and now we're sort of coming back, um, the crowd crowd support and people's knowing um, who the players are.
1: We're just about out of time, but we'll take our final break and then I'll come back and talk about your administrative role in cricket, which is something that you actually had while you were still playing at one stage and plenty of other things to finally close out our chat with Belinda Clark on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au.
0: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, proud supporters of International Women's Day. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Proud
1: supporters of International Women's Day. Our final segment with Belinda Clark on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. Now we've talked about your playing days. Administration wise, you were an administrator actually while you were playing, weren't you?
2: I was. So I was um I was working in the development department at Cricket New South Wales. Um Found it a lot easier to manage my cricket career through working in cricket than being a physio, which is what I'd trained to be and uh, ended up at Women's Cricket Australia. We integrated the two organisations and I've been at Cricket Australia ever since, so since about 2001. Um, So it's been a a long, long journey and it's been uh, great to be able to stay inside the game after I finished playing.
1: And you took over the high performance role.
2: Yeah, for a year or so, just while we were in in transition. And that was um, really interesting, rewarding and, um, you know, wonderful to see the guys sort of come out the the end of um, what was a really difficult time for them. Um, And the women obviously um, played through some great, great moments there too. So, yeah, I primarily work in community cricket, but I uh, got drafted into team performance for um, about 10 months it was, and then um, I'm now back in community cricket, which is probably where, um, where my heart lies.
1: Speaking of that difficulty, you were there at the time when everything blew up in South Africa and um, all of the fallout that happened uh, after that. Do you think that the game of cricket in Australia is out the other side of the tunnel now, or are there still some scars from what's happened?
2: No, look, I think... Um uh, it, we're definitely out the other side of the, the tunnel. I think the players have done an amazing job um, under Justin Langer to um, find um, the learnings from that and then put them in place. So he's, um, he's very clear on what, he's, what his vision and values are. And I think the team is being um, led superbly by Tim Payne and, and Aaron Finch. And I think um, absolutely they're, they're looking forward. They've, they've dealt with what they needed to deal with and they've taken the lessons. And um, I can't see them going back. Um, to to those days. So um, all, all guns firing at the moment.
1: You mentioned physiotherapy. You've got a few qualifications, haven't you? Did you go to Harvard at one stage?
2: Yeah, I had the, the um, great opportunity to spend a couple of months at Harvard and um, go to their business school, which was um, amazing. I met some amazing people there. But um, yeah, I love learning. I love um, being able to be challenged and learn new stuff. And uh, that was just uh, one of those moments. It was almost like just being thrown in a in a hot pot of, of, um, you know, great people, great learning opportunities. And I, um, I swam for a little while, I drowned a little bit and I came out the other side.
1: Too smart to be a professional sports person, aren't you?
2: Uh, no, not at all. Um, <laughs> I, I just love it. So it's a, uh, it's a great opportunity for me.
1: Uh, just in closing, where's your favorite ground? The favorite ground that you've played at anywhere in the world?
2: I have to say the SCG because as a child, um, I just watched so much cricket um, cricket there and I loved playing there. I played a bit there for New South Wales and, and for Australia. So of all the grounds I've played on, that's the one that feels like home. Um, the most exciting was probably the day I played at Lords. Um, I'll never forget that. Mm.
1: And a uh, question without notice, cricket is famous for sledging. <laughs> and there are some magnificent sledges and most of them have been very humorous over the years and there there are great stories can you think of one particular sledge that almost brought a chuckle to you when you were out on the field
2: well we had um uh, i mean the the game is is um you know it's important that people are respectful um when they're playing playing the game um the one thing i do remember that did make me laugh was um we played against england and there was a uh, number three batter for them was a girl called Barbara Daniels, and uh, w- when she got out, we would say bye bye, Barbara, bye bye, and it was just a bit of a team team thing. And um, one of the uh, one of the players dropped a, a, a lolly that had bye bye on it onto the batting crease as she came out to, to bat to take centre one day, and we thought it was hilarious. She didn't think it was funny, but uh, we thought it was hilarious that uh, that she had to move this thing um, off to, to take centre. But that that was probably the funniest thing that I that I'd seen um, on the on the field.
1: And just in closing on this international women's day for someone who blazed a trail for a lot of young girls and was an inspiration for a lot of young girls, what would your message be to any youngsters coming up through the ranks who have stars in their eyes in a sporting sense
2: I oh, probably just to you know make sure you you surround yourself with people that are supportive and um, just go for it there's um, often your own your own boundaries or your own um, barriers are greater than what other people put in front of you. So leave them behind and just have a a go.
1: You have been an inspiration. It's been a brilliant sporting life and you have inspired countless young females to go on and, and play the game that they love. Congratulations on a brilliant career and enjoy the World Cup today.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Belinda Clark joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hope you enjoyed the chat. We'll be here same time next week. Don't forget if you want to find out some more, Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll see you for another edition of the program next week.
0: Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022
1: semi-finals. all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.